0: Hi, Jeff from Austin again, G-E-O-F-F, ally, feminist. Look, I just wanted to call and share a metaphor. Maybe it's a simile, I can't remember the difference, but... Anyway, here it is. Sports are like wines. You can drink any kind of wine. It'll be pleasing. It'll get you drunk. But nice, aged wine has the time taken to become smoother, gentler on the senses. You know, I feel like these institutions like NFL, NBA, MLB, They've been around for so long, they've really settled on the right chemical composition. All the pieces are in the right place. The women's leagues, they're so new, they haven't had the time to get all the elements right yet. I think with time, it could be even better than these male-dominated sports franchises. I think it's inevitable, actually. It's really, really gonna happen soon. Anyway, I've been taking these courses to become a certified sommelier in the state of Texas, which is probably why I'm thinking about wine so much. Well, I hope y'all are well. Let me know if I can do anything for you. I'm an ally. Remember, go women.
1: Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Jessica Smetana, and I'm Kate Fagan. Kate, today I have some good news and bad news for you. Okay. I want the bad news first, <gasps> please. The bad news first. Okay, I'm always I'm always yeah. a bad news first type of person too. I don't like waiting to hear the yeah, bad news. Get it out of the way. I'll get it out of the way no, really quickly. Tell me, and then we'll tell everyone what's in this episode this week. The bad news is we only have two episodes left of season one of off *The Looking Glass*. Well,
2: and you know, it's been funny because you and I have been texting about this, making sure we flag for people that we only have two episodes left, so people don't think we got canceled. Yeah, like we, we don't, don't want, want people to think fashion, we just canceled. old-fashioned canceled, like yeah. pulled off the air. No, no, not no. like you know, yeah.
1: you know, twenty twenty-two. Not socially canceled. <laughs> But, yeah, we only have two episodes left, including this one. But the good news is this is going to be a great episode. So, Kate, tell us who's on today's show.
2: Okay. Well, I'm super excited as a 90s baby, and I know you've heard about the 90s, so that's cool for you, too, (laughs) is we have Tisha Pinacero on the show today. Okay. She is a WNBA legend, and before that, she was an Old Dominion legend. It is coincidence that we have back-to-back Old Dominion guests. I promise this is the only time that will happen, but... Tisha joins the show and mwah,
1: she's awesome. Yeah, that is, I'm very excited for that. We also have an extra extra that you are presenting me about Port Shaw.
2: I know, I'm, I'm really excited for that too. It's, uh, it's not as way, way back as our girl Ada Anderson walking in
1: circles, so split the difference. Uh, but we do go way back, way-ish back. So next week will be our season finale and we decided before we started season one of Off the Looking Glass that we would do a 10 episode run so that we could take a pause after 10 episodes, decide what we liked and didn't like, and then take more time to work on these longer features and booking more guests and getting more exciting things. So season two will be in your feeds in a couple more, probably a few more months, maybe a month, two months. We haven't really decided on a date yet, but we wanted to let everyone know when they should expect that so you will not get another episode of Off the Looking Glass after next week's for a little bit. So, adjust your expectations accordingly. But the good news is next week will be our season finale. We'll have a great show for you once again. Gino Auriemma has a standing invitation to come on. He may be in our finale episode. It seems like so far that's a pass. So don't... I feel like we got a, a definite pass, but I love that you're keeping that door open. I think the door is always um, open for Gino. We, wa- we before we started any of this, we asked for Gino to come on the show. I believe he was... Yeah, I mean, our door is open. Yeah, our door. Yes.
2: I, I think our door is wide open. I, I think we've been told that Gino doesn't feel like walking through the door. Right. But let's hope, let's hope that season two, we can change his
1: mind and we'll get Geno on for you. We promise we're trying. We're also trying to get Gina Davis still. We need closure about a league of their own. We don't have it yet. So we're hoping maybe by next week, we'll have a little bit more closure. We can finish out season one with a bang. Um, But no matter Mm -hmm. what, we have two great episodes for everyone. So buckle up and enjoy Off the Looking Glass. Don't skip the ads.
2: Hey, it's Neko Gwumake. I was asked where I train, and I provided the name of a gym that I go to. And this athlete, a male athlete, was shocked to find that I was training in public with other people. And I guess what bothered me, in hindsight, was that it didn't occur to me that that was so outlandish as a professional athlete for me to be training at a public facility as opposed to a private one because that's all i know so however small that detail might have been um it's just something that day in and day out i continue to realize as i experience being a woman in the business and in sports Our guest on today's episode of Off the Looking Glass grew up playing hoops on the playgrounds of Portugal. She came over to the U.S. and played for Old Dominion, where she won the Wade Trophy. She was then drafted by the Sacramento Monarchs. During her illustrious WNBA career, she was a four-time WNBA All-Star, three-time All-WNBA. She was a WNBA champ, and she currently sits at number two on the all-time assist list. Oh, yeah. She's also a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. She's now a WNBA FIBA certified agent at Sports International Group. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, the legend, Tisha Pinacero. All right. So we have a couple standard questions that we ask guests and I'm going to get the hard one out of the way first. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you followed the Muffet, McGraw, Gino, Ariema debate, kerfuffle. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Where, what is your perspective on, I assume you kind of recruit players, college players that you want to represent and you pay attention. You have your pulse on the women's game. What did you think of what Muffet said about like the inherent media bias that exists when it comes to UConn? Where do you land on
3: this? I can see both. I mean, special Connecticut. I mean, that's where ESPN is located as well. So, I mean, and you look at their record, I mean, the resume, I mean, how can you not support a team that has been so successful? Right. Um, so, yeah, I understand both of them, but, and, and now like UConn has been a little bit uh, for the past couple of years, like I said, parity in women's basketball has grown tremendously. So you do have people that are able to challenge Connecticut. And I think, Even like going back to the Houston uh, Comets and to UConn, I think it's so hard to win four in a row. And UConn did it. Uh, The Houston Comets did it. But I think we're going into a generation, you know, and a competitiveness that I think those days are over. Uh, So I definitely understand Muffet's comment. But then Gino replied the way that obviously he would. Uh, (laughs) And he has a point, you know, how can you, uh, you know, criticize a team that wins every time and has won, what, 11 championships? So how can And you could criticize that. So obviously the media attention is gonna be there. All
2: right, we'll we'll leave it at that for the Yukon question. Um okay, so you grew up playing hoops on like the playgrounds of Portugal. And I I read in I think it was actually the Norfolk paper once you got to ODU, and it was talking about growing up, and you had a quote where you would play on the playground until the moon replaced the sun, which I thought was a very poetic way of saying it. But Take us back to that time, like being a girl on the playgrounds of Portugal. Like, What was it like growing up playing there?
3: Yeah, another lucky situation that I literally had a playground right across from my house. So I just had to cross the street and, you know, you don't have playgrounds on every street, like a lot of times you have in the States. So the only thing is a lot of times I was the only girl playing with the boys. So it took them a little bit to get acquainted with me and to let me play and to actually realize that I could play and be a part of their uh, five on five games. And I, my brother, I followed him around. I have an older brother that um, already played basketball and my dad was a coach and he also played basketball. So it was just love at first sight. At the age of five, I just grabbed a ball and I just fell in love with it. And then I spent a lot, countless hours uh, in this playground, seriously, until I couldn't even see the room because it was so dark. And my mom would come me, almost drag me by my ears to go home, shower and eat and get ready for school the next day. So we
1: watched the movie Bend It Like Beckham a few weeks ago. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but... In the movie, they talk about how there's so many more opportunities for women to play sports in the United States. And I'm wondering if growing up in Portugal, that was a perception that you had about coming to the United States to play in
3: college. Absolutely. It's funny because my brother always was the one that wanted to come to go to school, get a scholarship. But he never did. And he kind of passed on the American dream to me. I only had two channels growing up and every Sunday at three o'clock there was a a NBA game there was tape delay uh, and I would watch it every day and obviously I also didn't have any women icons or idols to look up to so my idols were Magic and Michael Jordan and at a very young age I was like I want to go to the States absolutely especially growing up in Portugal where soccer it's a, a country that is ruled by soccer men's soccer and women's sports it's uh, I mean, it's a little bit better now, but back then it was really like non-existent. It was more of a hobby. or um, So I, I knew that I wanted to come here and, uh, and just try my luck. And one thing that I always knew, I wanted to be the best player that I could be. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I just didn't want to pass on any opportunities that could provide me to be the best player that I could be. And I always say, I, and I say that to this day, that I read a go and fail that never go, you know. So I knew there was a big risk to come here and to leave everything behind, but I, I was I was willing to take that risk.
2: It's fun that we have you on because we actually had Nancy Lieberman on last week. Okay. Who would have thought we had back to back old dominion alum
3: on the show I don't know. i'm know. i actually going to old dominion next weekend because it's the 25th anniversary that we made it to the final four you know it's not like UConn that they can celebrate that every 25 years <laughs> because they will have a celebration every year right yeah. so us, it's really big and um so we and alicia Milton jones that was my teammate in uh, la now is the head coach so it's kind of crazy but yeah yeah nancy it's uh, nancy's like my big sis Was there any connection between you deciding to go to Old
2: Dominion when you were in Portugal growing up and Nancy's teams and how good they were? Like what led you to ODU?
3: It's so crazy because sometimes you forget that this is 1994. There's no internet. There's nothing like that. I can do no research about where I'm going and where I want to go. So it's a little bit of a crazy story. I mean, I was 16 and I was playing in Portugal and I was playing with my national team, but we were competing in the division one. Uh, Leave. So I played against a team that had an American, her name was Allison Green. And after the game, she came up to me, she was like, you should go play in the States. And I said, I want to, I just don't know how to go about it. So I gave her my parents' home number, you know, the, the phone that you still had to, you know, <laughs> like that. The rotary and, dial. <laughs> yes. And a couple of years later, she became the assistant coach at Old Dominion. And she told the head coach about me. She said, Hey, there's this girl in Portugal. You have to go look at her. Like she's really good. So back, you know, to 1993, they started recruiting me and I came on a visit and I signed right away. I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, the facilities, they took me to eat seafood and they took me to Virginia Beach. And I'm like, okay, I'm sold. But I didn't even know who Nancy was. Like I can't really do any research. Obviously, when I got there and all the fans started coming up to me and say, I heard that you play like Nancy. Is that, is that true? I was like, who is Nancy? But quickly... I understood who she was, and I was like, ooh, that's big shoes to fill. I'm not sure if I'm going to be like Nancy, but I'm going to try. So you get over to ODU a couple
2: years before the 96 Atlanta Olympics, and then a year later, the WNBA launches. So it's not like you came over to ODU thinking, all right, and then I'm going to go play in the WNBA. So what was it like when you're, you must have been like a junior at ODU? Mm-hmm when the W launches and all of a sudden
3: this future opens up? Amazing timing, right? So I'm in the States. I knew that if I didn't come to college here, who was going to discover me over there? You know, so I was here, I had a platform to to play and to play on a national level against some of the top uh, schools, Stanford, Tennessee, you know, at the time, UConn wasn't really in the picture yet. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it just gave me an opportunity to fulfill a dream that I didn't even have. I mean, the dream of playing in the NBA was so unrealistic, right? Like, No woman is going to play in the NBA. So I couldn't really dream about the WNBA because it didn't exist. But the timing of it was perfect. Uh, I ended up playing 15 years in the WNBA, which is mind-blowing. And yeah, the goal in the beginning was, okay, let me go. Let me get my, my degree. Let me grow as a woman. Let me grow as a player and then just go play in Europe like everybody was doing. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, maybe maybe I can play in the WNBA. Yeah, I did. So that was, that was amazing.
2: <laughs> and speaking overseas, it, you've, you've played on some of like the iconic overseas teams, even if domestically, not a lot of fans, casual fans would have heard of them, but you played at Parma, Ekaterinburg, Spartak Moscow, and then in Turkey as well. I want to mm-hmm. focus on Spartak Moscow because of the lore behind that club. And Shabtai and the kind of the way that he treated his players on that team. Yeah. What was your experience playing for Spartak Moscow during those years?
3: Amazing. I mean, that's how I wish that there were more Shabtais in the world because that's how Uh, women should be treated Um, you know we flew private we stayed at five-star hotels our salaries were amazing uh, and he truly believed uh, in us and he treated us like total queens our team was crazy I mean we had an all-star team Uh, I mean I was playing on the team but I'm Portuguese so I had a Portuguese passport Sue at the time Sue Bird had an Israeli passport Diana Taurasi had an Italian passport and then we had Lauren Jackson Tina Thompson I mean it was (gasps) It's like we an Olympic was- team right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. So we won everything and we had so much fun off the court as well. And he was the main, uh, the main reason why everything ran so smoothly because he treated us like queens and we wanted to just give back the way we played. But unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But he did a lot for women's basketball, especially when we come, you know, we talk about European basketball. Yeah.
2: When I was talking to Tarazi about that experience, and you know, she'd tell stories of winning a big game and then taking a charter to St. Petersburg to like party for the weekend or him just dropping gifts of jewelry? Do you have any or, or flying over, not Madonna, but like somebody amazing? to perform like what can you give us some of the the, like that that gossipy funness from behind the scenes yeah
3: he didn't he didn't know how to do anything average everything had to be over the top because he truly believed that you know we deserved it so he would have a party and he would fly in like Eros hamazotti the italian singer or kelly's uh the r&b american you know singer so he always had something up his sleeve and a lot of times we didn't even know what was happening we were just like what he's coming to sing for us. Uh, he did all these parties. Usually after the games, he would like put $1,000, like so 10, like crisp, $100, $100 bills. Whoever was the MVP would just hand you an uh, envelope. So, you know, like overseas, there's like no cap, there's no rules, like anything goes, right? So everybody's just trying to, you know, be the MVP of the game so we can <laughs> get a little extra money. <laughs> but he was, I mean, like I said, we had so much fun and uh, he was respectful. He, w- he understood that we were, you know, players but also women that work extremely hard and sometimes we didn't get what we deserved so we went uh, above and beyond uh, everything that he did was nothing average everything was over the top
1: here we are in another rabbit hole Kate What is Spartak Moscow? What is she, what is Tisha talking about? Can you please shed some light on this? It almost sounds like we are in the multiverse, right, Jess? Like there is a, there is a team that existed
2: that flew women charter and dished out hundred dollar bills and dropped
1: caviar at every meal. Like this sounds like the multiverse. It sounds like something I might have learned in one of my, like, sports in the Cold War classes (laughs) way back when. But I really, I would like some more details because I don't know what this is and you seem very excited to talk about it. Yes, I am. I'm like jumping down my microphone right now because when Tisha
2: mentioned Spartak Moscow, my heart leapt because this is a 15-year-old obsession that I have had. And it started when I read this article in 2007 called Rolling in Rubles about Diana Tarazi and Sue Bird playing for the team that, turns out,
1: Tisha was also playing for Spartak Moscow, obviously. What an all-star team, I'm sorry. Let me just say, Tarazi, Sue Bird, Tisha, like, Moscow, lots of money, rubles. Please tell me more. So Spartak
2: Moscow was run and owned by this ex-KGB spy, Shabtai Kalmanovich. And it's, a, and it's such an interesting story because he actually spent time in Israel in prison there before there was like a, a spy exchange that happened. And Shabtai was whatever Russian money is, you know, I sometimes it's like oligarch. I wish I could tell you how he made his money, but who even knows? And he fell in love with a, a women's basketball player in the early 2000s. And because he did, he wanted to create, and she was a great women's basketball player, He wanted to create a team and he almost he almost treated women's basketball like like trading baseball cards with his friends like they owned other clubs in russia and he thought i want to be the best at this i'm willing to pay diana tarazi who's the best a million dollars to come play even though it's 16 times higher than you know her salary as a rookie in the wnba but it was just this little moment in time where this ex-KGB spy who happened to be an oligarch and was both in love with a women's basketball player and in love with the women's basketball game was willing to spend money like we've never seen before. And I find that so interesting because it seems like there are these worlds in the multiverse or somehow this sliver of our current universe where women are treated like we see male athletes being treated. Quick personal story, by the way. So you heard Tisha mention that she's playing on a Portuguese passport, and Sue was playing on an Israeli passport, and I think Dee was also playing on a foreign passport. I'm sure if it was Italian or Argentinian. And the interesting thing about that was that because the three of those players were playing on foreign passports, it opened up Spartak Moscow to still have two roster spots open for Americans because European clubs, because they didn't want a team just spending tons of money and signing every great American, they limited it to two American passports per team. So the value of being a quote-unquote American player or a WNBA All-Star level player and having a foreign passport was sky high because a team, as you can imagine, would pay above and beyond for Sue Bird beyond just Sue Bird, because it also left two roster spots still open for other Americans. I tell you this because my sister was born on the island of Corsica in France, so she has a French passport. I was born in Rhode Island, so I don't have a French passport. And this, to this day, is something that I talk to my my mom about how it is that they managed to get Ryan a foreign passport, which means nothing to her, whereas if I'd have had it, I could have played, I would have been more valuable overseas, more valuable than my actual value, which was almost nothing. So,
1: (laughs) well, and then you would have had the added value of living in the south of France right now instead of Charleston, so I could come visit you there and drink lots of French wine in the Riviera. Yes,
2: yes. And so mostly that value is for you as well, so it... You are also getting value. if Always angling. Ago, always angling. Always, Jess. I really I applaud you for that. Back to our story. The interesting thing that kind of puts an end to our little rabbit hole here is that Shabtai was assassinated in his Mercedes outside the Kremlin, shot. And so it's this very spy, cryptic, WNBA, women's basketball story that really has the stuff of of Hollywood similar to our Betty Robinson story but obviously completely different variables at play but like this is a story in women's basketball lore where you got to know it because once you kind of dive
1: into it you're like whoa this is a world I'd never heard of it's also one of those things that you're telling me that I'm thinking here How has this not been a movie yet right because I just went to this dude's Wikipedia page and there is a lot going on. How do, like how does the world not know this story? This is fascinating, Kate. I'm glad that we went down this rabbit hole to learn yes. more about this. So now when Tisha
2: mentions Spartak and what it was like, you have a little bit more information about the actual club and the background that she was playing for. So should we go back up? Yeah, let's out this go back of the of
3: a All
2: right. This is something as a writer and I've gone, I went to Ekaterinburg when um, Brittany Griner and Dee were still there and I went to Spartak and what I was trying to understand was what the model was that for these clubs succeeding and being able to pay salaries and stay afloat in a way that before the W in the US, you know, there's something like 15 failed professional leagues and I was trying to get at the heart of is there a different model overseas or is it just that they're willing to do it for a community basis that maybe doesn't exist here in the states? What did you learn about playing overseas and living overseas and being from overseas about that model?
3: Yeah, the model is completely different. I mean, even for for like little kids and little boys, like you start in a club, you don't really play in school. You know, you have pe classes, but when your parents want, you're like my daughter or my son to play soccer you take them to a club to play soccer if you want them to play basketball you take them maybe to a different club to place to play basketball so it's completely different than here like you don't really have college basketball or college sports everything goes through clubs some clubs are founded like over 100 years ago or 200 years ago everything is based on sponsorships that's why sometimes now we have that also even in the nba you see little patches of you know sponsorships that uh teams have but sometimes overseas you have like all your shorts, all your sh- shirts, uh, your shooting shirt, everything has different patches from all these different sponsors. So that's kind of how all the clubs are moved and sponsored is like with funding from, from different sponsors, or you have a person like Shabtai that is just a millionaire and he puts out of his own money. So you do have an Ekaterinburg also is a little bit of that situation where the, the owner uh, is a guy that is very well off financially. So it's just investing women's basketball um, because they like it. Uh, But yeah, the model is different and sometimes it's almost like apples and oranges. I just try not to compare and I just, uh, you know, enjoy the the American model, but then enjoy the European model. I'm able to adjust. And I think a lot of the people that have experienced both, they also know, try not to compare.
2: What did you learn being on the inside of the Sacramento team, which was one of the foundational franchises in the W and then what is it? 12 years later contracts did you learn any lessons in what happened in Sacramento that might apply to the
3: future yeah it's a business and you cannot take things personal in this business I mean we were completely blindsided we did not see it coming and to me the hardest thing was that we were successful. We we sold tickets. We won a championship. We had a lot of fans that are still to this day heartbroken because the team just completely vanished. And the fact that I mean, the, the, the ta- at the time, the Maloofs, our owners, didn't even try to sell the team and uh, possibly keep the team in Sacramento because I think some investors would have came through and kept the team there. But you just learned that, you know, this is a business. You can get traded. You can get cut. A team or a franchise can fold. And, you know, life goes on and you are the one, you know, heartbroken. But at the end of the day, this is a business and you, you just have to do everything that you can to, to give everything to the game, to work on your craft as an individual and then not take things personal because um, that's how it is in this business.
2: One thing I wanted to ask you about, because Neca recently said that she feels like the W is in need of expansion. And you having come from Sacramento and the Monarchs, which disbanded in 2009, so the W has this history of wanting to make sure that any franchise that exists, you don't wanna retract any ever again. Where do you land on, is it time for the W? I mean, 144 spots? for the best women's league in the world feels like so cutthroat that we might be leaving amazing talent on the cutting room floor at this point.
3: Yeah, I think it's time. I just think the the league is at a point with 25 years, like we just celebrated 25th anniversary. And I think we are at a point where the talent is so good. There's so much more parity in women's basketball. And I'm not just talking about WNBA. I'm even talking about college basketball. Uh, So the competition, the level of competition is amazing. And, I don't even think it's 144 because we do have a salary cap. So some teams cannot even carry 12 players. Some only carry 11. So we might even like talk about 140 jobs. And there are a lot of girls out there and women that get drafted and they might not even get to go to camp. You know, they think, Oh my God, my dream is about to come true. But that dream is like completely shut down like the day after the draft, because it's like, we don't have space for you. So you cannot come. So we are to the point that the level and the competition has gotten so much better that I do wish that we had at least two more teams, but like you said, the timing of everything you do have to make sure that the people that are going to invest in a new franchise, in a new city, they are ready and it's not going to be a flop. We want somebody is all in and is committed because we want to create more job opportunities but we want to be successful and we want the league to continue to grow uh, and the way it grows is with expansion and continue to create more job opportunities for these amazing women that are in college and they have the dream to playing in the WNBA but some cannot fulfill that dream because there's not enough room for everybody.
0: From the Milton Brothers, Parker and Bradley, comes the brand new family game of Catastrophic Deception. It's College Admission Scandal The Board Game. Be the first to get your player into a prestigious college through the sneaky side door without anyone noticing or else you'll ruin everyone's lives. First, choose your starting player. You can be in-the-know college sports coach, a deceptive rich parent, or a kind of oblivious child. To start, simply draw a random sports card from the obscure college program deck and start lying.
2: I drew the equestrian card. That's the horsey one, right?
0: Looks like we're off to a promising start. Make your way across the treacherous labyrinth of nosy neighbors and incriminating social media posts. Collect enough deceit tokens to trick people into thinking you got into Stanford and that you earned it. Now you'll just need to make it to the Rick Singer Square to pay daddy and it'll cost you big time.
1: Oh no, I drew the
0: famous 90s actress card. That means you lost a turn, but don't worry, you'll still get paid. Oh yeah, I just got added to the Harvard fencing team. Be careful because one wrong step could mean jail time for two whole months. Fencing is like construction stuff, right? Oh no, you've been caught in your lie. That means the FBI is at your door. Quick, use the privileged celebrity card. Can't get me, I'm on set in Chicago. Whew, that was a close one. So for a fun family night of racketeering, try College Admission Scandal the Board Game. Must be a millionaire to play.
4: the day had dawned unusually crisp. A front had moved through the night before, bringing rain that had scoured the air of its heaviness and left a freshness that seemed to bode well for the afternoon's game, an event that was already beginning to draw spectators a full hour or more before the referee's whistle. Inside the model Indian school itself, the girls from Fort Shaw were donning Navy middies and bloomers then helping one another add the final touch, a bright little ribbon of silk at the end of each girl's long braid. Their shoes were tightly laced, their stockings pulled up and bound so that not a wrinkle showed between shoe tops and bloomer hems. With their appearance, a roar went up from the crowd, stretching out to the very edges of the fence, separating the hogans, grass huts, and teepees of the village from the school atop. Indian Hill. After the quiet darkness of the hallway the noise and glare were momentarily unnerving but the girls quickly regained their composure and nodded their thanks to the crowd. The cheers continued and someone bounced the ball on the concrete floor of the porch. A quick pass around, a few dribbles, then the entire team fell into place, all ten of them, two lines of five standing as if in military formation where the intramural train had pulled into Indian Station and the Missouri All-Stars were stepping off the train and onto the platform, suited up and ready for the game that would determine the champions of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair.
2: That was historian Linda Peavy, reading from the opening page of her book, Full Court Quest, written with Ursula Smith and published in 2008. Before we tell you the rest of this long-ago story, with ripples to present day, we must go back to the beginning, which, like most beginnings, seemed rather ordinary at the time. When James Naismith invented the game of basketball in 1891, he did so in response to an edict from his boss. He had two weeks to devise an indoor game, and not too rowdy of one, that would keep students, well, boys really, in shape during the long, harsh New England winters. Actually, you know what? Let's let Naismith himself tell the story. This from a rare radio interview on the New York program, We the People, from 1939.
4: It was in the winter of 1891, when I was physical instructor at Springfield College in Massachusetts. We had a real New England blizzard. One day I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym divided them up into teams of nine and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. Ten years later, basketball was being played all over the country, and the whole thing started with a couple of peach baskets I put up in a little gym 48 years ago. I guess it just goes to show what you can do if you have to.
2: It's that last sentence I'm especially fascinated by. It just goes to show what you can do if you have to. Naismith means it in the standard way, necessity being the mother of invention and all. But what strikes me is how applicable the line is to the story I want to tell you today. Naismith was simply devising a game to keep his kids sane and fit during winter, but the byproduct of his invention When it soon landed in the hands of others, and I do mean others, was something even more rebellious and transgressive and, for brief moments anyway, liberating. This is the story of the Fort Shaw Indian girls basketball team, who in 1904 were crowned world champions. Before we pull back to the wider view, let's zoom in for a minute to the young women who made up Fort Shaw's team, the 10 girls. Rose, Flora, Katie, Minnie, Genevieve, Sarah, Emma, Jeannie, Belle, and Nettie. Minnie was a great shooter. Belle was the versatile leader. Emma was the little playmaker. Nettie was a star with a prodigious leap. Jen was the impish one. And now it seems obvious that sports, that a team could provide solace and a place to belong. But this concept of finding out about yourself by playing sports with others was an experience rarely offered to women back then.
4: They came of age at a time when a fledgling game was being embraced by women and girls whose gender had thus far excluded them from participation in team sports.
2: But for the girls of Fort Shaw, it was an experience that came with a price. In 1892, a fort that was located on Sun River in Montana and on Blackfoot territory became an Indian boarding school where Indian kids were sent, often forced to, from tribes across Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. It was,
4: as Linda explained. An Indian boarding school that was supposed to strip them of all their old practices And teach them the white man's way. Some kids who attended Fort Shaw hated it and ran away. Others
2: endured, and still others embraced, or at least saw the benefit, of learning English and the skills associated with what had become, at that point, the inevitable proliferation of the Western man's way of life. For the girls on Fort Shaw's basketball team, life had not been easy. Four of them had already lost their mothers. Two, had lost their fathers. And while at school,
4: two of their sisters
2: would die from infectious disease.
4: At that particular time, they were training the Indians to take their place among a white or Indian society, but they were giving them English. They were giving them tools that made that possible.
2: And also around this same time, basketball, still two words, was spreading rapidly. Within months of introducing the game at Springfield College, Naismith had published the original rules, and physical education teachers across the country took the game back to their schools. But many young women never got a chance to play basketball with Naismith's rules, because the game had already been modified by female teachers to make it more, quote, ladylike. By sheer luck, or maybe it was destiny, the version of the game brought back to Fort Shaw by Josephine Langley in 1897 And the one played across much of the West was Naismith's version. And even though the Native American culture traditionally encouraged the same enthusiasm for sports in girls as they did in boys, at Fort Shaw, basketball was the only sport the girls were allowed to participate in. And by 1902, when the school finished a new court, the girls of Fort Shaw, those 10 girls I mentioned earlier, fell in love with the game. And they were really, really good. So good, in fact, that they would beat all comers and started to develop a reputation as the best team in the region.
0: Fort Shaw's famous girls basketball team has not been playing much throughout the state this season for the reason that there is no girls team in the state that can give them anything like a tussle. They stand alone and unrivaled. This may not be pleasant reading for the white girls, but it is true. That was a clip from
2: PBS's 2010 documentary, Playing for the World. In that 1903 season, Fort Shaw defeated the University of Montana in front of 700 people, but they also faced racism, an anti-Indian sentiment, and they also struggled to find opponents. Soon, an invitation came to play, to perform really, at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis.
4: The World's Fair of 1904 was to celebrate the Louisiana Purchase.
2: Quick history lesson. The Louisiana Purchase was when the U.S. bought 828,000 square miles of land from Napoleon's France for $15 million in 1803. The swath of land stretching from Montana down at a slight angle through what is now Denver and all the way to New Orleans.
4: The thrust of this fair had been to to show the path of progress once that you opened up the west then they had representatives of all the states that came open on the territories that became open under the louisiana purchase they had all those people represented to show progress through the years because the theme of that period if you think about it in american history was definitely progress 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 electricity all of the modern things they were all on display but then they had the Indians also on display because after all, they were what we were leaving behind. The team focused on the opportunity the fair presented them,
2: more than the oddity of being gawked at. And more than anything, they reveled in their skill and teamwork on the court, a fast-paced style of play that no other team could match.
4: Fort Shaw clinched the championship they
2: defeated the Missouri All-Stars 17-6. Their supporters and Montana journalists declared them the undisputed world champions. In the months after the fair, the team made public their desire for games, for better competition. This, from an article in the Great Falls Tribune, they challenged the whole world. Fort Shaw basketball girls willing to play against any girls' team in existence.
4: Billy Adams, physical instructor of the Fort Shaw Indian School and coach of the Crack Girls basketball team which Montanans have become so proud of in its recent triumphal tour east of the exposition, returned from St. Louis. He is probably one of the happiest men in the city, and deservedly so, for his team of Indian maidens have yet to meet its equal on the basketball floor, and so confident have they become in their ability that they have challenged the girls teams of the world.
2: But they never quite get the chance to grow with the game. Fort Shaw closed just a few years later. And in many parts of the country, specifically at universities, faculty banned female coeds from competitive play. The shining wonder that was Fort Shaw faded from memory and has been almost entirely buried by history. But what hasn't been lost and could never be is the ripple effects this long-ago team had. Fort Shaw is just one reason for the indelible connection between Native Americans and basketball, which was most recently highlighted in the doc Off the Res about former Louisville stars Shoni and Jude Schimmel, who grew up on the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Oregon.
4: Naismith wanted a game that would give his boys activity within uh, the confines of a New England winter. What people liked was football. He really wanted boys to be tough and whatnot. Indian boys played football, too, but they didn't play it with the same fervor that they play basketball. And I think that Fort Shaw did have an impact there because it became known early on, that these Indian girls, every place you went, you wanted to have baskets up then, you wanted to start your players. And it doesn't take a lot of equipment to play basketball. And there was something else too, a through
2: line, connecting those 10 girls from 1904 through
4: to today. For many, many young people now, playing basketball is your only chance for college or it's your only chance to get out of whatever place you're stuck in. And I think part of the reason their teamwork developed so well was out of the sense that this was their ticket
2: That is the end of Episode 9, our penultimate episode of this season of Off the Looking Glass. I want to make sure right away to thank Linda Peavy, whose book is Full Court Quest. That was her voice that you heard in the Fort Shaw Extra Extra. And just a big thank you to her because she took a lot of time and shared a lot of her knowledge about the Fort Shaw Indian World Champion team of 1904. So thank you. Linda and and Jess, it took me a long time to learn the word penultimate because it sounds like it should be the best of something as opposed to the second to last. It's just a very strange word.
1: I was also very confused about the word penultimate until I started watching TV. And then when you read like TV reviews and they're like, oh, the penultimate episode, this happened. And I'd be like, wait, but that didn't happen in the finale. And that's Mm -hmm. when I realized the penultimate sets up the finale so yeah. this is our penultimate episode like you said because we're setting up next week where we may or may not get some closure on certain loose we're ends. working for it we're working for it and, and maybe
2: we're just sandbagging you and Gina is going to be on the show and so is Gina Davis you don't know you're gonna have to stick around but can we both agree that penultimate is a big flashy word that isn't doesn't mean anything big and flashy and it's confusing
1: yeah because it could yeah. be the penultimate yeah. episode and we could just like do a normal episode and be like okay Yeah. See you next time. Yeah. But then we can go around being like, but it was the penultimate. Right. Anyway, should we tell people who helps make this show? We should. Well, first we should thank Tisha Panchero because that was a great interview. We appreciate her. We should also thank uh, Mike Ryan for lending us his old timey newscaster voice. Once again, Mm. And we should thank Carl Scott, our executive producer and sound designer. Yes. And we should also thank you,
2: co-host and also producer of the show. And, of course, as always, we're thanking Nameless Numberhead, the comedy duo out of here in Charleston, South Carolina, for both writing Jeff from Austin, as well as the college admission scandal board game. You can pick that up at any retailer close to you. Or, of course, if you want to shop on Amazon,
1: you can look for it there. All right, that's our penultimate episode. See you next time. It's the penultimate episode!
3: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.